Okay, so here we are. Here we are. And all of us have had a journey to get here, one way or another. Long distances, short distances, in between distances, internally, externally, and here we are. So what I'd like to do this evening is to begin to start weaving a field of safety, of ease, of clarity about setting the intention of what we're doing this this time together. And so that we can also feel an increasing sense of comfort and trust in ourself, in the practice, in our own unfolding. Many people in introducing themselves talked about the power of this time. You know, it's the, it's a time of year. It's a transition time. We're moving into a new year. And it's a, a beautiful opportunity to just take stock of where we're at and to allow things that need to become clarified to clarify to let go of what doesn't serve. And when we are able to do that, then a natural kind of renewal is possible. So when we let go and when we relax, renewal follows. And my own experience is is, is that there's a couple of things that really support us being able to do this together. First of all, is our own aspiration. And for myself, you know, many years ago, in the year 2000, I took the Bodhisattva vows, which for a Theravadan, it was kind of like a radical departure from what I had, you know, I had, I had been told or what my sense was. And yet there was something in my heart that was really feeling like it was a right way, that it was really important to clarify for myself that the practice was really for everybody. It was for the whole world. So as I became clear that I wanted to wake up in order to be of maximum benefit for the world, there were some really significant shifts that I experienced. Maybe I'll talk about them later as the retreat unfolds. So we start with an aspiration and, you know, in a, in a context like this, taking the refuges and the precepts really helps hold a kind of container, clarifies a motive, and, and begins to bring us into a field that is immediately larger than our own personal world. And that is so tremendously valuable to connect with something that includes but expands way beyond the immediacy of our own personal world. So the kind of main quality of what we're going to be using in this retreat is inquiry. And inquiry uses the clarity to see what is happening and a a non-reactive observation and witness, coupled with a heart of enormous care and kindness, tenderness. 
And so when we bring these two things together, when we bring observation and heartfulness into our bodies, into our inquiry, into our silence, it has a very interesting effect. Because even though we are going to be operating in silence, Silence is not a, a disconnect. It's not an, a, an abandonment. It's not a, I don't care about you silence. It's a, it's a silence that's exquisitely sensitive, but not verbal. Exquisitely responsive, but not engaging in conversation. So we have four nights and five days together. And what can happen is is that we can feel like a family where the tenderness and the caring and the interest in each other just blossoms in a way that's almost beyond language to describe. And that's correct. That is what can happen when we engage in silence but this heartfelt, heartful inquiry where we, our internal exploration does not cast everyone else out. And yet, for most of us, silence is unbelievably useful because our patterns of communication are so habitual and so strongly linked with all kinds of perceptions and associations and, uh, you know, that to actually feel okay and have permission to just be with one's own internal experience and navigate relationship through sensing rather than through speaking for, for many is a huge relief. What I would also like to do for um, in the afternoons starting day after tomorrow is to have a period of insight dialogue where we're bringing the qualities of meditation into the experience of relating with each other. Because one of the things that can happen on a retreat is that when the concentration is very deep and the silence is unbroken, then it can be that we feel a tremendous gulf between what happens in a retreat context and everything else that happens in the rest of our world. And when we bring these meditative qualities into our ability to be present with somebody else and track what's going on inside of ourselves, That's an enormous, powerful tool that we can bring with us in the world that we often inhabit and live. So when we look at meditation, you know, I think if we went to a a Dharma bookstore, you know, we could find hundreds and maybe even thousands of books on meditation different styles, different traditions, different emphases, different language, different, 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 different. 
And yet for me, I think fundamentally meditation really is about two things. One element of meditation is learning how to bring balance into the conditions of what we're experiencing. And we are going to have lots of opportunities to do that, to learn how to relax, how to energize, to learn how to sit, how to use posture, how to use breath, how to use all of these things as tools to bring balance. I'll be offering some qigong to work with our energy so that our dense bodies can become more subtle, we can become more skillful with what's going on. And we can learn the kinds of different things that we experience and have some tools to work with them so that we don't have to feel so strung out or knocked out or spun out or beside ourselves by the experiences that we have. You know, the kinds of passions that we have, the kinds of loving and hating that we experience, the kinds of incredible opinions that we have, you know. We can know them and respond with wisdom, with skillfulness, so that we are not being driven around by forces that we're out of control with, that are driving us. You know, and learning how to just feel the body, you know, so probably much of tomorrow is just going to be simple about body and breath. Not much more complicated than that. Because after Christmas, you know, people have had too much to eat and too much to drink and too much to say and too much to flash and too much to unwrap and too much, you know, too many stores to go to. And the system is just sort of um, unraveling from the season. And just it's really helpful just to reconnect with our body to know our body, to feel our body, to let our body ground. And I'll also include things that I've learned in the last five or ten years, which are not part of the tradition that I studied in, you know, learning how to ground. Grounding is not mentioned in the Pali Canon. And yet I have found it an invaluable way of supporting depth, inquiry, and balance. So you will notice a a weaving of a variety of tools that I have learned and used because I find them helpful. So just as a, a, a small digression, you know, when I was living at Amravati, I was in charge of the workshop there, which was a, a huge building, and it had all kinds of stuff in it. It had a paint store, and it had an external wood store, and it had an internal cabinet wood store, and it had an electronic shop, and it had a bandsaw, and a table saw, and a joiner, and it had a, a welding setup, and it had a paint store. I mean, it was huge. And we had all kinds of tools. And nobody had any problem that none of those tools were mentioned in the Pali Canon. No one ever, never occurred to anybody that that would ever be an issue, that the tools that were in the workshop were not mentioned in the Pali Canon. And yet, we have a lot of tools that are available to us in a Western world that are not mentioned in the Pali Canon. And some people find it deeply disturbing 
to use tools that are not mentioned in the Pali Canon when they have to do with your mind, because that somehow is different than the tools that you work with on materials. Well, I have a different opinion about that. My personal opinion is, is, is that I feel that tools, when they support ease, when they support well-being, when they support balance, when they support understanding, are useful to use. So I'm not a, a fundamentalist purist that refers only to what's in the Pali scriptures. I am an eclectic, I don't know what you call me, innovative, uh, out of the box, I don't know what you call me. But, and so I have gathered tools and I share them. But as is the way I work, you know, I would be really deeply disturbed if you believed what I said. What I am interested in is, is that you use what I say as a part of your own inquiry to see how it resonates with you and to take up what actually feels resonant with where you need to be rather than just do it because I say so. Now, one of the things that's interesting in the way that we are responding is, is that you know, I'll talk more about how to listen to a talk and how to set our posture up. I'll do that maybe when we do the, the evening meditation. I'll do a little bit on posture and more on posture tomorrow. But really the best way of listening to a talk is to have 90% of your attention internally focused so that you are really highly attuned to your own somatic responsiveness to what it is that you hear. And when 90% of your attention is focused on your internal sense of things, then you can immediately get a register if whether you hear something resonates or not, because your body will do an aha kind of movement. Either your shoulders will relax or your breath will somehow drop or something will open up. And you can know with certainty when you feel that, that it's happening because of an internal response that you can trust. Now, it also can be that you can hear or listen, and there's very little resonance. And you don't need to search for resonance. You don't need to make any resonance. You can just leave it. Yeah. And then sometimes what can happen is that you can get an, a no, like an absolute resistance, like, no, this doesn't feel right. And then that's an invitation for another level of inquiry. Is that resistance coming because genuinely it is not resonating with you? In which case, drop it. Or is the resistance coming because it touches so deeply with something that is hard to hear, opens something that's a little bit tender, touches a raw nerve that really is in welcoming being explored, and so this kind of resistance of, no, I don't want to go there, requires a little bit more discernment to see what is that. 
Is this something that actually requires further inquiry or is it really not something for me to worry about, to just drop it? But I am not sitting here with the assumption that I have the answers and that you are supposed to believe me. I sit here in this place of privilege with the same inquiry as what is the truth and how is it that I can support an unfolding of awakening for each of us. And I offer my life, my experience, my practice, my commitment, my dedication into this process with absolutely every clear understanding I'm still in a process myself. So listen from your belly, listen from your feet, listen from your shoulder blades, listen with your hands, listen with your heart. And let your listening tell you what you need to hear. So there's two kinds of meditation kind of meditation where we bring balance to the conditions of what we're experiencing. And a lot of that is going to center around just coming into contact with our body. Learning how to be embodied. What that means. And we can watch and see how things unfold over the days. There is an enormous amount of learning in terms of coming into balance with the conditions of our world. In fact, we could spend our entire life just doing that. There's learning how to focus. There's learning how to relax. There's learning how to brighten the mind. All of these things are bringing balance to the conditions of our world. But the reality is, is that even if we become masters of that, tremendously proficient, absolutely adept at that, and it's rare to do that, we still can get caught out. Because in bringing things into balance, there is a subtle sense of being in control. And sometimes it's not at all so subtle. And there's still a me that is doing it. I am here meditating. That's what I'm doing. I'm doing it. And not so long ago, it came to our attention a whole bunch of children and adults went to school and they didn't go home. And I don't know how many of those people experienced that whole process as an imbalanced, in control experience. And the truth is, that every one of us is going to die and none of us knows when and for most of us it's not going to be an imbalanced and in control experience and there are other things other than death 
that are out of control. There might be tremendous loss or tremendous sickness or the Waldo Canyon fire or the fires in Boulder that burned down your house or the economy going flip-flop and not being able to have the same kind of security with one's resources or partnerships dissolving or even the experience of letting go or opening up or having your heart experience something you've never experienced before and you can't locate who you are. And so if we're struggling to find an imbalanced, in control way of trying to deal with what is fundamentally out of balance and out of control, we are going to suffer. But the problem isn't so much that we have failed our meditation. I mean, it can be that our conclusion when we suffer is is that meditation doesn't work or that we can't make it work. And both of these conclusions are not really accurate. It's just that our meditation has been confined to one area. And there's a whole other area. And this other area is about learning to relax attention into that which is already pure, awakened, innate. It's not about fixing. It's not about changing. It's not about balance. It's about a fundamental reframing of the way we're looking at things. So if one basket of meditation is about bringing balance to the conditions, the other basket of meditation are the whole different varieties of ways of accessing, of resting, of stabilizing, of knowing the unconditioned, what's innate, what's pure, what's unborn, what's unformed, what's timeless, what's there before our birth, what will remain after we've died. So it's my intention in these next days to do both, to support with balance, to support with tools, to support with ground, to support with inquiry that allows us to become embodied, to explore what our lives have been like and what no longer serves us, to allow us to let go, and to begin to touch into, to taste, to have a glimmer of, to know, to have a feeling for this quality of awareness that pervades everything, Everyone is beyond time and space. And to see if in touching into that, we can come into contact with a kind of renewal that genuinely nourishes. 
So weaving a fabric, weaving a fabric, weaving a fabric of heartfulness, weaving a fabric of intention, weaving a fabric of family, of people who care, weaving a fabric of safety, that it is okay to be who we are. It's okay to feel what we feel. It's okay to think what we think. And to begin, we can support that fabric by taking refuges and precepts. So the refuges and the precepts connect us to this awakened mind, to this timeless, ever-present, innate mind. That's taking refuge in the Buddha, the awakened one. Taking refuge in the Dhamma is to take refuge in the teachings, in all of the instructions. It's to take refuge in the truth of the way things are in this moment, right now. To take refuge in the Sangha is to take refuge in every being that has awoken and does not suffer to the path. It's to take refuge in each other's aspiration as much as in our own. It's to take refuge in this collective aspiration to wake up that extends far beyond this little circle, extends far beyond people who call themselves Buddhist. The precept to refrain from killing any living being is to set the stage for a kind of harmlessness that needs to become paramount. It's not only about killing, it's about harming. And when we look, genuinely look, at the way we relate to ourselves, the kind of ways that we criticize or slander or berate or judge, ourselves. We have got to find a way to see that as harmful and make a commitment to stop believing that, speaking about ourselves that way, following those thoughts. As we do that in ourselves, it's inevitable that it will spill out to the people around us. The second precept is to refrain from taking what is not given. So people's stuff, they can leave their stuff. You don't need to worry about it. You don't need to worry that somebody's going to come into your room. You don't need to worry about what's in the refrigerator in the kitchen. It doesn't belong to us, we can just leave it there. But on a deeper level, on a subtle level, on a contemplative level, it's about not taking what is not given. 
we're not demanding what is not being offered. Now, I have an alms bowl. And for the last 22 years, I've lived on alms. The food that is offered. And sometimes the food that I get is so delicious. And sometimes the food that I get is so not delicious. And I have to eat whatever is offered. And sometimes we sit and what we have is so delicious. And sometimes we sit and what we have to work with is so not delicious. And we get to work with what is offered. So sitting here demanding to be having something that we're not having is asking for something that hasn't been offered. The third precept, to refrain from any kind of sexual activity, is not in any way a statement or an opinion about sexuality or sexual relationships about the importance of intimacy. It's about creating a safe container for ourselves to feel whatever we need to feel. It's a container to fully allow our sexuality rather than to deny it, knowing that whatever it is that we feel, we're not going to act on it. Feelings are allowed intentionally releasing or acting on it is not what's going to happen over these next few days. And the interesting thing about having periods of time of creating this boundary is how insightful it can be about the many different ways that we locate ourselves in our sexuality. The way we dress, the way we flick our hair, the way we move, the way we drink a cup of tea. I mean, it's incredible the ways that different things can be connected to the way we feel sexually. And there's no need for any judgment about any of it. It's just a fabulous opportunity to wake up to see what is there. So we can have safety with each other and safety with ourselves. That whatever is there is okay. This can open up a whole inquiry into the way we relate to any of the sense experiences that we have as a strategy to deflect other feelings that are going on inside of us, which is also enormously insightful. So the third precept on an external level has to do with a clear containment around our sexuality and relating with each other that way. And as an internal contemplation, it has to do with how we relate to sensuality, to any sense contact, as a way of deflecting or diverting our attention from what's going on. The fourth precept has to do with right speech, and a lot of the time we're going to be in silence, so it'll be simple. And when we're talking, when we're discussing things in groups or in insight dialogue or in one-to-one interviews, 
you know, have it be from your own direct experience. Speak honestly, speak authentically. There's no need to say anything that you feel too exposed with. Whatever we say here, it needs to be held in confidence. And I'll go through that more with the groups, what that means, holding things in confidence. It's not about talking about other people and what's happening with them. It's about really staying in our own experience. It's not about harsh speech. It's not about divisive speech. It's not about uh, gossipy speech or useless speech. It's about what's honest, what's true, what's real, what's authentic, what's connected to our own practice. But on an internal contemplation, it has to do about the kinds of thoughts we believe in our mind, not just what we're saying, but the kinds of thoughts that we are following or absorbed with or obsessed with inside of ourselves and how we're relating to those. The fifth precept has to do with drugs and drink and alcohol. And, you know, unless you brought a stash, I don't think that they have got anybody, any wine or beer or alcohol here in the, in the Franciscan nunnery, the convent. You know, and I don't think within easy walking distance is a bar, so I think most people are going to be okay in that way. But in terms of an internal contemplation, what this is really related to has to do with our wanting to become intoxicated with the world. And for myself, this has been a huge kind of contemplation of to recognize what kind of a bliss junkie I was, where I would squeeze experiences to get bliss out of it because ordinary things was intolerable to me. I thought I was going to die if it was just normal. And so, you know, each of us has, a, has our own inquiry to look at, you know, how we are related to the world of addiction and what gets activated and how we can use our various different addictions instead of just being present with what's going on. The sixth precept has to do with um, not eating after midday. And, uh, you know, as a Buddhist nun, you know, this is a big, huge thing. So eating dinner has been like, you know, uh, you just don't do that. And in the last 18 months, I've had a lot of health problems and lost a whole bunch of weight and was starving, like, all the time. And so I have come to a different understanding about this precept and what's skillful with it. And so part of that was directly related to my own physicality, that I, I wasn't actually okay on just two meals a day. And part of that was is that I had absolutely attached to this idea about what these precepts meant, where I I was disconnected from my own body sense because I was afraid of the feeling of what would happen if I actually explored what I really needed and what kind of territory that would take me in. And so these last 18 months has been a tremendous unraveling around my gripping 
and identification with this monastic form. And it's been unbelievably insightful to see various different things. And one of the things has been around food. And to see how I would deny body feelings in order to stay in a place of safety that I did not feel comfortable exploring. And I have come to understand that this is actually not conducive towards awakening. And that there are kinds of cravings that are helpful to renounce. And there's kinds of hunger that is actually, your body is telling you, you need some substance. And chocolate and cheese is not what you need. So, you know, I'm working with this and trying to figure out, well, what is a balanced response to it, you know? So there's rice cakes and miso soup and olive oil and a little bit of substance that we can help ourselves to when we need to. And if that isn't enough, then talk with Catherine and we'll figure out alternatives because I don't want people um, uh, starving. And I know... I mean, for me, there were there was a lot of value in learning how to move against the cravings that I had and the hunger. And now there's a value in being able to honor them. So I, I would like to support um, skillfulness rather than a rigid approach to precepts around this whole thing. And the seventh precept has to do with um, entertainment, beautification, and adornment. So if you're at ease taking off jewelry and not wearing makeup, and, and uh, then you're certainly invited to do that. And I was on a retreat once. It was spectacular. There was a woman, and she was, it was like, it was like meditator fashion show. It was like, you know, we had, I don't know how many sittings a day, and there was like as many sittings, there were different meditation costumes that she would appear in, you know? And it was like, wow, you know, people actually do this? (laughs) They brought this many different kinds of clothes that they can actually change their clothes five times a day, you know? So it's like, all right, so we get dressed and the idea is is that we have something on so that we're not naked and that we're warm enough and it's like, it's done, you know, it's finished. (laughs) End of story. And so just, you know, watching the way the whole mind operates around this. And then the eighth precept has to do with um, not sleeping on high and luxurious sleeping places. And, you know, in a place like this, there aren't high and luxurious sleeping places, really. But I think really what that precept has also to do with is our relationship with sleep. You know, so for some, sleep is the drug of preference. You know, that any time anything gets uncomfortable, that we just, you know, zone out. So it's just a, a, you know, a gentle inquiry as to how we're relating to sleep. Some people have traveled distances. You know, some people have been working unbelievably hard to get everything done so that they can come here on time so that they can hold the space for all of us you know and so that might be really the case that some people are genuinely exhausted and so you know for people who are genuinely exhausted what they need to do is to sleep you know so 
you figure out, you know, of this schedule that we're offering, you know, when you're going to be here and when you're not going to be here. This is your retreat. If you need to sleep in in the morning and, and not come to the morning meditation, you know, trust your intuition about what is needed rather than press yourself into a mold that does not fitting you, you know? And just, you know, allow this thing to unfold, unravel in a way that is, you know, from the belly out rather than from the head down. Okay? So in talking about refuges and precepts and talking about any of these things with meditation, are there any questions? Any, anything isn't clear? Anything you'd like more clarification? Obviously, as we go on, I'll give more meditation instructions. Yes, please. Um, is it okay to people is having a certain um to okay to do writing I think it's also okay just to check and see you know where is it coming from because sometimes our our hunger to write is also kind of like a part of wanting to record what our process is and really what this is is an invitation to just be present with it yeah and to just trust that there'll be an unfolding with it so there's nothing wrong with writing yeah but sometimes it's it's um, incredibly useful, and sometimes it's not, you know. And so just to begin to sense if you can feel where it's coming from, and to tune into your own sense of is this actually helpful right now, or is it not helpful? And then you get to make the decision. Yeah. Are there other questions? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.